this week, we're re-releasing our episode, Why We Are All to Blame for the Death of Amy Winehouse. It's been over 11 years since Amy Winehouse died at just 27 years old. In her short life, the iconic vocalist cemented her place in music history. Tragically, Amy's struggles with mental health problems and substance use disorder claimed her life too early. By re-releasing this episode, we hope to do our part to preserve Amy's memory. However, it's also our goal to raise more awareness about She Recovers, an organization we mention in the episode. The She Recovers Foundation is an organization that believes we're all recovering from something. She Recovers holds online support groups that welcome self-identified women recovering from any struggle they face. Individuals seeking support for a variety of issues, from substance use disorder to anxiety or eating disorders, are all welcome. She Recovers can be found at sherecovers.org. If you are struggling, we encourage you to reach out to a resource like this. Remember, you are worthy of support. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. He's in the building! Rink the moment. Rink it. I said, empty your mind. Coquettish and coy. Ow. Ow. What? Yeah, there's people that are dying. The wickedly talented. More than great. It was historic. Crack is world. Oh, good for you. I have to apologize. One of the hottest. Hello, and welcome back to The Reheat, a podcast that re-examines the hottest celebrity news and scandals of yesteryear and asks, how would we react to the same events if they'd transpired today? I'm your co-host, Sarah Sahagian. And I'm Sadaf Hassan, your other co-host. And in today's episode, we're going to talk all things Amy Winehouse, her rise, her fall, and the legacy she left behind after becoming a member of the 27 Club. Speaking of which, today's episode was made in collaboration with the 27 Club podcast, a show that breaks down the legacies of the countless tortured and talented musicians who all died at the age of 27. Writer Zeth Lundy has lent us his voice today to help us bring some key Amy quotes to life. You'll see what I mean in a bit. Now, I was a very big fan of Amy and her music, and I still remember what I was wearing and where I was when I heard she died 10 years ago. Sarah, tell me about how you connected with Amy and her music, and what went through your head when you heard she'd passed? So, Amy Winehouse was the soundtrack to graduate school for me. I went to grad school in London. I started in 2008, graduated in 2009, and I lived right near Camden, which was her famous stomping grounds. So if we would have parties at school, people would yell, more Amy Winehouse, play more Amy. Like, she was, uh, we felt like we had this personal connection to her. And I mean, that's true with many celebrity relationships. That's the nature of the parasocial relationship. But because we were living so close to her, we really did almost almost feel like she was our neighbor, despite the fact that none of us met her. And I don't even think any of us ever cited her anywhere. And because of that connection, when she passed, I wouldn't even say I was devastated. I would say I was so jarred by it that I couldn't even get to that place. It just didn't feel possible to me because she was such a, a presence, even though she wasn't actually physically there in my life for that for that year that has had an indelible impact on me. 
Yeah, I think so for me too. She was the soundtrack for a lot of us during that period. But let's retrace our footsteps a little when it comes to Amy and let's start at the beginning. So she was born in 1983 in London to a pharmacist mother and a cab driver father. But her parents split when she was nine years old, after which she was raised primarily by her mother. She attended theater school and famously the prestigious Brit School for Performers, which is actually where Adele also went. Mm -hmm. But she didn't exactly have very good grades and she wasn't exactly a rule follower, maybe to nobody's surprise. She had a tendency to get into trouble, whether it was for wearing a nose ring or disrupting class. All that mattered to her, and she made this pretty well known, was to sing and perform on a stage. She even had a short-lived rap group called Sweet and Sour, inspired by Salt and Peppa, which I love. At age 12, she wrote in an essay, quote, I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles for five minutes. She definitely managed that. Now, when she was just 19, she signed with renowned British producer Simon Fuller's management company, but he kept her name and entire existence pretty secretive in the industry while the company developed her skills and brand. All the while, she was performing as a jazz standard singer at a popular London club. And as people began to hear her voice and dig to find the face behind it, a little battle over signing her began between labels EMI, Virgin, and Island. She ultimately went with Island. And in 2003, at the age of just 20, she released her gorgeous and jazzy debut album, Frank. And her unique, smoky vocals definitely captured the industry's attention. She was compared to everyone from Billie Holiday to Macy Gray. But it wasn't just her voice. Her songwriting won tons of acclaim for being so biting and so poetic. It was very sassy. And it even won her an Ivor Novello Award. Now, it was around this time that things began happening for her professionally, that her personal life started to get a bit tumultuous. A bit is probably mincing words. Her grandmother, who was essentially her guardian and whom she was incredibly close to, had fallen ill. And she also began what would prove to be a toxic on-off relationship with Blake Fielder Civil, a former video production assistant. She admitted they would often be violent with each other, and both had even been photographed bruised and bloody. Blake also admitted that he introduced Amy to cocaine and heroin, and that the two would often cut themselves to relieve their pains. The running story became that he was her undoing. Now, here's what her first manager, Nick Godwin, said to the Times in 2007 about his impact on her, as read by Seth from the 27 Club. Amy changed overnight after she met Blake. She just sounded completely different. Her personality became more distant. And it seemed to me like that was down to the drugs. When I met her, she smoked weed, but she thought the people who took class A drugs were stupid. She used to laugh at them. So, Sarah, do you think her addiction issues were really her fault, or did the media just want someone to blame? I mean, who can we put blame on anybody in this situation? Because at the same time, the tabloids certainly seemed to fan the flames when they would get anybody to reveal anything about her. She was on every cover. Her and Blake were like the new Sid and Nancy. Can we put it on him? I mean, addiction is a disease. He was clearly, from what we know, struggling with it, with substance use issues too. So to blame Blake and to scapegoat Blake is is just kind of, I think it's unfair, but also it's silly. There are so many different ways people can get addicted to substances. And it's so common that clearly it's actually pretty easy for this to happen to anyone. Yeah, I do think it's I do think the media was so tough on him. I mean, here was this woman who so many people loved as much as they trashed her, but we'll come back to that. 
And they were looking for somebody to blame. And he was very easy to do that because he even admitted to introducing her to all these substances. And Mm -hmm. that is a really hard thing to come back from. At the same time, I have a real big problem when people blame a partner for not being able to protect their partner from addiction or any other thing and not being the one who can come in and be the hero. Life doesn't actually work like that. People can't just go in and save that person. They have to be the one who does that work on their own. And you just need somebody who's supportive. And maybe he wasn't that, you know, maybe he was an enabler. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's complicated and we can't know exactly how it worked. Now, by this point too, Amy had refined her signature look, which I love so much, that broad, bold, winged eyeliner, tall beehive to rival Marge Simpson, midriff bearing always. Mm -hmm. It was retro meets streetwear and complemented her sound, which by now was heavily influenced by 50s and 60s girl groups. New York Times style reporter Guy Trebay called her, quote, a five foot three almanac of visual reference. I love Mm -hmm. that. And that wasn't the way she referenced the Runettes and Cleopatra and Brigitte all at once. She was something different, especially at that time. So when Blake ended the relationship, leaving her for his ex-girlfriend, Amy took her pain to the mic with a refined sound and brand, releasing the album Back to Black in 2006, much of which is about their tumultuous relationship. Here's how she described writing the album itself to the mirror, as read here by Zeth from the 27 Club. The songs I wrote on the album are from times when I was so messed up in the head. I had literally hit rock bottom. I hate to use such a phrase since I'm sure I will sink lower at some point, but I was clinically depressed and I managed to get something I'm so proud of out of something that was so horrible. This was also when she began working with Mark Ronson as a producer and his career started to take off. She also hired the late soul singer Sharon Jones' backup band, the Dap Kings, to accompany her on tour, mastering that beautiful jazzy sound. The album won her five Grammys and also remains the second best-selling album of the 21st century in the UK, sandwiched between two Adele albums. Pretty good. In fact, she paved the way for voices like Adele's, Duffy's, Paloma Faith's, Estelle's, you name it. And Adele has also always cited her as a key inspiration. So a year later, she released the infamous single, Rehab. I think we all know that song pretty well. And that catapulted her into global fame. She wrote it in just a few hours with the help of Mark, but it was a bittersweet rise because the song was about her manager's continued efforts to place her in a rehab clinic and work on her addiction issues. But in it, she insists she doesn't actually want to go. Now, here's a little bit of Amy speaking to MTV in 2007, notably not sober, about the song itself. About a time, uh, uh, I was going through a bit of a bad, bad patch, and I wasn't working as much as I am now. So, um, so I didn't have stuff to keep me busy. Do you know what I mean? And I was just going out, playing pool all day, and drinking, and just being generally quite reckless and stupid and idiotic. And I was in love at the time, you know, and and I knew it wouldn't, I knew it couldn't work out. You know, it was very much a. You know, very much wrong wrong time, like white place, wrong time, or white fella, very, very wrong time. You know, you know, we were definitely too much for each other, right? Couldn't be together, can't be together. So, um, uh, um, I did something really messed up, and uh, and uh, basically, my managers of the time tried to actually make me go into rehab, and I was like. Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was stupid, do you know what I mean? Like, I just thought it was really stupid. I just thought it was stupid. 
obviously this is a person who was suffering, but it became part of her image and she became a superstar. And so then you kind of, in some ways, if you're her management after this album comes out, you have a perverse incentive to maintain this kind of rock and roll image. And to be fair, in some ways, this was revolutionary because she was one of the first female performers who really embraced that kind of rock and roll image that, like, the Rolling Stones had, right? Where, like, Mm -hmm. Keith Richards openly did substances and talked about it and, you know, didn't really want to kick the habit and could be messy in public. And here was a woman who was allowed to be messy in public, and the reason was because she was so talented. Now, I think that talented people, we should get them help. I don't think being talented means that we should not help you when you have a substance use disorder. But it was interesting, and it did push the boundaries of our society, because I I can't think of any women who'd ever been afforded that luxury, where the public kind of embraced them almost because of that rock star-style messiness. So it it was interesting to watch, even though it was tragic, and you knew just by listening to her music that this person needed help. Yeah, I think that's so true, especially in our generation. That was just not a thing that we'd seen before. This was coming off, you know, this high sort of 90s pop time. And then we cut to this woman who is just so different in every way, down to just her entire chaotic nature. And I think you're right. And this comes back to something we've talked about in so many episodes, which is just that we do love our women when they're down because they show a bit of vulnerability and we like that. But at the same time, Beautiful music does tend to come out of pain. That's just a fact. It's not the only way you get that beautiful music, but there's something to be said for that. I mean, she said so many times herself, she wrote best when she was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a terrible irony, you know, that we were eating it up at the same time. She's essentially saying, I have an addiction and I need help, but I refuse to get it. And, you know, her management did try, but... If the media is eating up that behavior, they're not only going to try so much, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, you start to wonder, is she going to be as popular if she if she heals? Like, I, I don't, I'm not, I have no idea what conversations her management had behind closed doors. But I could see people thinking that way because the music industry is fundamentally about money um, Mm. and marketability. And I mean, I do agree that oftentimes beautiful music comes out of sadness and tragedy, but it doesn't have to come out of people suffering quite this much, and it doesn't have to come out of health problems. I mean, Adele produces some of her best music after a breakup, but there's a difference between a breakup and also an addiction issue that's threatening your life. And that is where I think it's just unconscionable for people to just say, oh, just write your pain out, turn it into beautiful art. Like, this woman deserved help. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Am I one of those people who cheers for my favorite artists to have a breakup so that I can get a great album after? Absolutely. But you're right. There is a difference between that and legitimate health problems. I don't want anybody to have heartbreak. Um, Now, later that year, the trouble did sadly continue for Amy. She reunited with Blake and the two were married in May. After a summer of killing it on tour at Glastonbury and Lollapalooza, she was reported to be visibly intoxicated at a series of shows swearing at her fans, stumbling and crying on stage, often showing up late, leading to boos and walkouts at packed shows. In late November, one month after she and Blake were arrested in Norway for carrying cannabis, she canceled her tour and was hospitalized for exhaustion. That's a common celebrity issue we see a lot, Uh citing her doctor's advice that she needed to rest. A statement by concert promoter Live Nation blamed, quote, the rigors involved in touring and the intense emotional strain that Amy 
has been under in recent weeks. It's worth noting, too, that despite her persona, she was actually very uncomfortable on stage and would get shy and nervous. She actually admitted various times that the more insecure she was, the more she drank. Um, now, later on, Amy would admit that drugs were to blame for the hospitalization and that along with the depression, she had battled self-harm and eating disorders throughout her life. Reports claim she had overdosed on heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, ketamine, and alcohol. After British tabloid The Sun published a video which allegedly showed Amy smoking crack cocaine and discussing taking ecstasy and Valium in January 2008, she, yes, finally did go to rehab, having reached what her friends and family deemed her absolute bottom, a time that left them all frightened for her life. In the few months after rehab, she was reported to be doing well and even seemed to have the biggest turnaround possible, performing in February at the Grammys and winning five awards. Remotely, though, because she couldn't get a visa due to her drug problems and therefore couldn't travel to the U.S., sadly. But I will say, I will always remember seeing her face in that moment when she won those awards. Mm -hmm. She was so moved. She was also so shocked. It almost felt as if she had no clue how beloved she was. I think she was so lost in this other part of her life that she didn't even see that. And it's a bit of a devastating, bittersweet moment in that way. Sarah, why do you think she felt that way? Do you think she bought into the media's image of herself? Yeah, I think it would be really hard to see all those magazine covers of people kind of gleefully discussing your health problems and mocking you and for you not to think that they hated you because the media did bully her. The the tabloids bullied her. And they did this, for the record, they did this with so many women in this era. I mean, Lindsay Lohan was relentlessly bullied by the media for having addiction issues and a health problem. There was very little empathy afforded these particular superstars who also struggled with this health issue. But the media and the magazines don't necessarily reflect the sentiments of the fans. Yeah. And they definitely don't reflect the sentiments of, of I mean, music lovers. So it, it makes sense that she still won a Grammy. It, she still won Grammys because her music is, you know, I would say objectively excellent. Yes. But it was so overshadowed by these embarrassing moments that were captured on film and then published, which, if anything, likely just exacerbated her problem because we know that a lot of this problem came from feelings of insecurity and sadness. So having people just sort of point at you and stare and and laugh can't really be good for those problems when it comes to, you know, your insecurity. Yeah, she was like a sideshow to her own show. It's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And the toughest part for me was this video that I remember the son publishing. And I remember it being such a big, weak moment for her just in terms of publicity the son was so thrilled that they'd sort of quote-unquote caught her in the act mm -hmm. because that also is one of the worst fucking tabloids in existence. It's a British tabloid. Mm -hmm. It's kind of their whole thing. And they really lived to see her fall. She was on the cover constantly. But the thing that I wonder though, Sarah, is if they didn't catch that moment and if they didn't publish it, would she have gotten the help that she needed? I mean, is there kind of an irony to this? It's hard to say, right? It's also, I mean, would she have needed as, as much help as she did if this coverage hadn't happened? Great point. It's so hard to know. And that's why fame is incredibly complicated. Because, yes, sometimes the media is raising awareness about these problems these people have, and that might alert friends and family to it, and then they might get help. But you also have to stop and think, would this person be suffering this much and therefore self-medicating this much with substances if they weren't being tormented? 
I don't know, right? Like, I it, I don't know. I can't say. I just think we live in a world where both things can be true, where the media can sometimes alert family members to an issue and can also exacerbate the same issue with that coverage. Yeah, not that that's at all, or even, I would say maybe partially redemptive, but not entirely if the son who had no good intentions, I think that's no, fair didn't. to say. Yeah. They had no good intentions. No. Now, after the seemingly peaceful period, in April 2008, Amy was involved in an assault in which she admitted to slapping a man at a bar after he bumped into her, but was ultimately just given a warning. A week later, she was arrested on suspicion of possessing drugs after the son's video was given to police, but was ultimately cleared because the substance in the videos actually couldn't be confirmed. Um, Now, Blake was also still very much a problem and one that was growing. From Uh July 2008 to February 2009, he was imprisoned after assaulting a pub landlord. The rumor was that Amy had relapsed in her time apart from Blake after she appeared intoxicated yet again at a performance that fall. But in January 2009, the story flipped yet again as she was seen vacationing with actor Josh Bowman of Revenge, if anyone remembers that show, looking legitimately happy and healthy for the first time since the Grammys. She told tabloid News of the World at the time, quote, I finally escaped from hell. I'm in love again and I don't need drugs. Look at me, I'm glowing. I'll deal with Blake when I get back. But our whole marriage was based on doing drugs. I mean, that's pretty self-aware, I would say. Mm-hmm. Now, this moment of lucidity proved to be true because that year, she and Blake did indeed divorce to the joy of many fans everywhere, mm-hmm. with Amy claiming he had cheated on her and him, you'll be glad to know, receiving not even a penny in the settlement. Yay. Now, around this time, Amy also launched her own record label, Lioness Records, with the first talent signed being her goddaughter, Dionne Bromfield. So clearly, things were going pretty well. But this upswing, like the ones before it, would prove to be short-lived. In March, Amy was arrested and charged with assault after dancer Shireen Flash claimed she had punched her in the eye while drunk at an event. Amy appeared in court, testifying that she had only pushed Shireen after they'd gone to an argument about her selling her story to a tabloid. This, I do want to clarify, had been a running theme in Amy's life because not only had an ex of hers actually sold stories about her to tabloids, but Blake had allegedly as well after they'd split. So she was very wary of the people she kept around her, her family and her friends. And with her fear of the paparazzi as well, there was a very clear need to build barriers with the media. Um, She was eventually found not guilty of the assault, but also canceled her highly anticipated Coachella appearance to deal with the matter and would be arrested on another assault later that year. Her personal issues, obviously, were once again overshadowing her work in a very big way. Here's a clip of Amy talking with MTV in 2004 about how much the work mattered to her and how much she didn't care for the press and it feels pretty prescient now. Success to me is not success to the record company or whoever. Success to to me is having the freedom to work with whoever I want to work with. Yeah. Um, To always be able to just fuck everything off and go to the studio when I have to go to the studio or... But you can't do that because you have other responsibilities now. You're becoming an artist in the public eye. So all of a sudden you're going to be... No, I'm not saying you're going to be hounded by the press, but you're going to have certain responsibilities that are going to come onto your doorstep that you may not particularly Okay, that's with. cool, but I think the more people see of me, the more they'll realise that all I'm good for is making tunes. So leave me alone and I'll do it. I will, I will do the music. I just need time to do the music, you know what I mean? 
Uh, it breaks my heart a little bit to hear that now. So again, that was in 2004 before everything sort of turned in the opposite direction. Um, now, Amy was ridiculed and dubbed quote-unquote wino by bloggers like the horrendous Perez Hilton. Uh Um, And she also, by the way, had restraining orders against certain paparazzi. She had a rule that paparazzi couldn't be within 100 meters of her when they were following her, a court-ordered rule. Um, So I just kind of wonder if her story had unraveled today, Sarah, do you think the media would have been at all sensitive to the fact that alcohol abuse is an actual disease and maybe noticed the way that their behavior was impacting her? Like, I think that our discourse has evolved far enough that we objectively understand, or at least most people understand who've read anything about it, that addiction is a disease and it's very easy to fall into this disease and we should have empathy. But there is also simultaneously this kind of gleeful schadenfreude in watching another person suffer that the media still very much embraces, especially tabloids. So I don't think there would have been a lack of coverage. It just might have been written in a more sympathetic, less derogatory way. But, like, it's still damaging if people are invading your privacy like that when you're suffering and, you know, you really just need space to heal. Yeah, and let's not forget, we have very different rules for people who are on a stage, famous people. Mm -hmm. No matter what they're doing, they're still kind of considered by and large to us to be entertainers, and that's where that sentence sort of ends. It's kind of the idea that everything you do is for me, and therefore I can consume all of it to whatever degree I want to, and I don't need to give you any respect because I'm an audience member, and that's there's such a barrier, it's never going to impact you. But it does, because we consumed all this content, you know? So it's complicated, I think. But I, I do personally feel like things might be a little bit different now. I mean... In 2021, we speak a little bit more about how alcohol is an actual disease, but also Mm -hmm. that eating disorders and Mm self-harm. I mean, the Mm -hmm. thing that's the wildest to me about Amy's story is that she was so open about all of that. Yeah. No celebrity has ever been that open to that degree. She would casually pepper it into all her interviews that she was suffering from so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Nobody ever asked follow-up questions. Nobody really thought to Mm -hmm. maybe, okay, we should do something about this. I don't think that would be the case today. I think we would have more of a conversation, at least about that side of it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, there would have been more of a conversation. Who knows how it would have played out differently if there had been that kind of candid discourse surrounding her. I don't know. I mean, that's... I personally believe we can change outcomes by changing the conversation. I do too. But it's just, you know, does that also have to be accompanied by giving people space when they're suffering? Like, we are a part of this economy. Like, we, we're, you know, we do entertainment journalism. We have this podcast. But I do think that you can be interested in celebrity and you can cover celebrities and also give them a little bit of space if they're objectively ill. Like, it's hard to imagine if she'd announced, like, I have breast cancer and I need time off to heal that people would have as doggedly pursued her looking for the pictures, right? Because we do, as a society, while we're starting to accept that addiction is a disease, we kind of see it as a different category of disease and have less sympathy for it, right? Like, there is still this misconception that you are more responsible for this illness than you would be if you ended up with pancreatic cancer. One million percent. You're so right. God, I'd like to see some of that change. But you know what? Now that we've dug into some of the much heavier parts of Amy's come up, I'd say it's time we take a little break. Grab your Kleenex and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
Throughout 2010 and into early 2011, Amy would claim she was sober, while others would say otherwise and add performances throughout the year. She'd forget lyrics, arrive late, seem tired or distracted, and repeatedly cut the performances short. At the time, she had said she was actively working on her next album with Mark Ronson and fellow frequent collaborator Salam Remy, and that it would be released in January 2011. As we know, that never happened. She was also dating director Reg Travis, and their relationship never seemed to be mired in any trouble, unlike with Blake, so that was a nice little positive. Her father, Mitch, would later say that she and Reg had planned to marry and have children together. Mid-year, she would do another stint in rehab shortly after performing two successful shows with Tony Bennett at London's Royal Albert Hall and Mark Ronson at the 100 Club, respectively. But in January 2011, things began to take another turn. After a series of shows in Brazil, a friend of Amy's called her father and told him she'd had a seizure, which she couldn't remember and was briefly hospitalized. She also resorted to self-harm again in March when she heard the news that Blake, her now ex, had been arrested on burglary charges. Soon after, she would cut her very last song, The Gorgeous Body and Soul, which she sang alongside her idol, Tony Bennett. I highly recommend that song if you haven't heard it before. And he always spoke very highly of her. She even said she was his favorite person to ever do it with. Now, another rehab stint followed, and in June, Amy embarked on a European tour that kicked off in Belgrade. But it was quickly evident that she was too drunk to perform. Forgetting lyrics and the names of her band members, she was ultimately booed off the stage. Some press even claimed her bodyguards wouldn't allow her off the stage when she tried to walk out. Possibly because that had been a pattern, but it's hard not to see that as being something a little problematic when your artist's clearly struggling on stage. Mm -hmm. Now, needless to say, the rest of the tour was canceled. Her final appearance was at the iTunes Festival in July 2011, where she supported her goddaughter, Dion, who was performing. Three days later, at the age of 27, Amy was found dead in her London home by her bodyguard, who said he'd noticed she'd been drinking in the days prior, but not to such a severe extent. She had died of accidental alcohol poisoning or misadventure, as the coroner ruled at the inquest. Her blood alcohol level was 0.416, with 0.35 considered a fatal level. For the record, Mm -hmm. 0.08 is considered too intoxicated to drive. Mm-hmm. Now, her brother Alex would also say that her bulimia had contributed to her weak state at the time, and she'd evidently become concerningly thin in those last years. Here's a clip of her close friends, Naomi Perry, Catriona Grelay, and Chantelle Doucette, after her death, discussing what she was dealing with in her final days as part of BBC's recent Reclaiming Amy doc. I think at the time, the thing that I was more worried about was probably her eating. She was making herself sick all the time. She was bulimic from the the moment, you know, from the time I met her. She had that struggle the whole time. It's something that you feel deep shame over. Um, And it isn't as simple as you want to control your body weight. There's so much more mentally going on with it. It's so hard to listen to that, Sarah, and not feel like we could have done something. And by we, I don't just mean the fans because only to so much, but her team, her family, her friends. What do you make of that? I mean, this was, the patterns are constant. I mean, the number of times I said again, mm-hmm. again, and again, it was so evident. And yet nothing was done at any point significantly enough to make a change. While there were no doubt some people who just didn't care and could have helped it, 
there were probably also people who wanted to help and weren't were at a loss for what to do. And part of that is because there was still such a stigma then. I yeah. mean, there's a stigma now, but even more of a stigma regarding these issues then. And so people didn't talk about them as much, right? There was this this tough love approach, like let them hit rock bottom. That is the thing that is now being critiqued by the recovery movement. AA that discourse that has dominated recovery for so long in North America really emphasizes that you have to let people hit rock bottom. And there are new movements, um, including She Recovers, which was developed in Canada and now has spread all over the world, that one of their main tenets is you don't have to hit rock bottom in order to recover. We will embrace you, even if it's only causing you a little bit of trouble. And also they have a more holistic approach to recovery where they'll say like anyone can come here whether you have an eating disorder or a drug use disorder or both or something else. And so it destigmatizes substance use because it just sees it as a, a list of of many problems you could have and then you have this community of people to heal together. So that is she recovers if If you are looking for a community of people to help support you in recovery from anything, I highly, highly recommend this invaluable resource. But Amy Winehouse didn't have access to that. And the discourse hadn't shifted enough, I think, to destigmatize these addiction issues sufficiently to make it kind of acceptable to go get help. Like, getting help was controversial. It was a scandal every time she went to rehab, right? And it must have been to her thinking, oh, God, you know, I need help again. People are going to judge me for not staying sober. People are are going to criticize me. I'm going to be on magazines. Like, and that encourages secrecy and it encourages people to spiral. And it's it's not healthy and it, it sucks that that happened to her. Yeah, you make such a good point. And I think what really encapsulates her whole legacy is that with her death, she joined the 27 Club, quote unquote club. Not a real thing, a theoretical thing, because it includes countless icons and musicians like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Kurt Cobain. They all died at the age of 27. So did Amy. Now, we mythologize these people because of their insane talent and their very big personalities. But ultimately, can't we just say they were just really dumb fucking kids? Because that seems to be the case, the way that things came to an end. But we place these people on this very strange platform because they all happened to die at the same time. But they didn't sign a pact. I think it's really interesting because here we are saying, like, you know, you lived hard, you lived fast, you died young. What a very cool thing. Is it, though? Not really. You're right. I mean, glamorizing death at 27 that's particularly damaging. I, I had a friend who literally in my math class in grade 11 said that she wanted to die by suicide at 27 Oof. because so many cool people died at 27. And that made her think that there was nothing left to live for after 27, given that so many of her idols had died at that age. And the media kind of manufactured that myth, right? By really emphasizing the 27 aspect of all of these tragedies. So, I mean, that girl is fine. She went to law school. Yay. She's doing great. <laughs> she, she is not dead. She is comfortably in her 30s. Yay. But that's the problem. <laughs> these myths make it look so cool. Yeah. And what it really is is a tragedy. Yeah. Like, it's so sad that she died at 27. And it kind of makes sense that this is an age where a lot of our, our musicians and celebrities died just because it's the age at which, like, you, you get more and more isolated in addiction, for many of these people, right? Like, when you're really young and you're drinking a lot or you're doing drugs, people just view you as a young person having a good time. And then there's more and more of a stigma as you enter adulthood and you haven't 
conquered these things. But the truth is you haven't conquered them because they're not easy to stop. That's such a good point. I mean, to your friend's point, who I'm so glad is alive today, I remember being, I remember being young and going through my Nirvana phase, which I think we all did, and being so fascinated and falling in love with Kurt Cobain. And I remember thinking, oh my God, so cool, dying at 27. I wonder what happens. Like I had this kind of sort of fantasy that you go off into the special land and they all hang out together. Mm -hmm. And I'm embarrassed to admit that now. But now I'm older than they were. And I just, I almost kind of, I don't want to laugh, but I do sort of side-eye the whole thing and think, that's not really great, actually. (laughs) There's nothing appealing about that lifestyle because they didn't even really get to enjoy it. And part of their legacy is their addictions. And I think that's actually really devastating. Mm -hmm. Now, the outpouring of love that Amy received at her death was immense. Of course, she was so beloved. Hundreds of fans crowded outside her home for days, building a memorial of cards and tokens. Mark Ronson, Patti Smith, Green Day, Lady Gaga, Marianne Faithful, Adele, George Michael, you name it. They performed tributes in her honor. Her parents, Janice and Mitch, also set up the Amy Winehouse Foundation to help prevent drug abuse in youth. They also both wrote their own books about Amy and raising her, with her mother revealing she had been living with MS while Amy was getting sicker herself and blamed herself as she couldn't be there for her child when she needed her. It's interesting that that's not something Amy ever really discussed. Mm -hmm. It was also Mitch who tended to find himself in a lot of conversations controversy, with fans accusing him of trying to profit off of his daughter's troubles. This reached a fever pitch with the release of director Asif Kapadia's 2015 documentary, Amy, which was well-reviewed and beloved by fans, but not so much by Mitch. In the doc, he comes off as an opportunist who, at times, enabled Amy, telling her she didn't have to go to rehab if she didn't want to, despite her management's efforts. And I do want to remind everybody about a very specific lyric in rehab that speaks to this. Amy sings, quote, I ain't got the time and if my daddy thinks I'm mm-hmm. fine... Ugh, Mm -hmm. yikes, Mitch. It also documents her time in St. Lucia when she was happy, and he showed up on the island with a camera with the intent to film her. Now, if you've watched the doc, there's no denying. It's pretty clear that this man was enabling her in a lot of ways, and he was kind of getting off on it and definitely profiting from it. And there's also no denying that the doc sort of places quite a bit of blame on him. But Asif did interview over a hundred of Amy's close friends and coworkers for the story, so there's quite a bit of people backing it up. What's clear is that those around her were part of the problem, if not the solution. Reg Travis, her boyfriend at the time, was also not a fan of the doc, and I thought this was interesting because he said it showed too many of her tougher moments and none of the positive. Mm -hmm. For instance, he wasn't included at all, despite speaking with the director for hours. Mm -hmm. He even called the documentary a, quote, slur upon her. Amy's family was hounded by people afterwards for quite some time. They still are, her father especially, saying they should have done more for her. Do we blame anyone here? I mean, what is the recourse? We sort of talked about this earlier, but I think it's a very problematic thing to be blaming the parents after her death and putting it all on them. Yeah, I mean, while I do think her father bears some responsibility, certainly more than most people, for enabling her um, and trying to profit off of her, at the same time, we have a society that blames parents for everything that goes wrong in their children's lives, right? When a lot of the times there are societal and structural problems that combine to create these really tragic outcomes. Because some of what he did isn't that different from what other stage parents did whose kids turned out 
okay in the end, or at least are still alive. Like, we always look at these things in retrospect and everybody becomes so hypocritical because the truth is no one was really trying to help her. So to blame her family, even though like perhaps they were better positioned than a lot of people to help her is a little bit disingenuous because people didn't know this was going to be the outcome. And and I think people should have helped her, but also as a society, we weren't really talking about how to help people with addictions. So no. how do we expect people to be psychic and know exactly A, what's going to happen and B, to determine how to help someone when no one is talking about it and addiction is still so stigmatized. Like, that was very much the case in the OOs. Yeah, and I do want to say, go back and listen to our Momagers and Dadagers episode because we get into that pretty deep. And I agree, Mitch was pretty bad, but he also doesn't even come close to some of the others who we now give credit to for their Mm -hmm. successful children. Mm -hmm. And we would have done the same with him, I'm sure, if she didn't end up going the way that she did. Um, And now much was made during Amy's career of awarding her while she became an accidental image of addiction. The executive director of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, Antonio Maria Costa, even said that she sent a bad message, quote, to others who are vulnerable to addiction, while others even said that giving her Grammys was only enabling her. Um, I find this really interesting because that's not something we say about male artists. Mm -mm. I don't remember anybody Mm -mm. ever saying we should take anything away from a man when he was awarded. No. (laughs) They only tended to get tons of defense in their honor rather than this. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is absurd to me. Uh, Her record label, Island, did say that the more media coverage she got, no matter what the story was, the more albums she sold. I think it's really interesting that the record label even admitted this, um, Mm -hmm. but also not surprising. Uh, So really, it was in their best interest for her to continue resisting rehab and be the wreck the media decided that she was. Mm. Now, in 2008, BBC Radio Scotland head Jeff Zinsky admitted the media were complicit in undermining celebrities, including Amy, while Rod McKenzie, editor of BBC Radio One's Newsbeat, said, quote, if you play her music to a certain demographic, those same people want to know what's happening in her private life. If you don't cover it, you're insulting young license fee payers. <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Okay. But, yeah, but they are right, right? It's not just the media at fault here. We, the fans, the audience are too. And Amy's star rose when social media did. So mm-hmm. she was made a joke and a meme all over Twitter and Facebook. Do you remember this, Sarah? Because I this yeah. was just at the start. Oh, I remember that. I remember all of the Perez Hilton coverage. I mean, he called yeah. her a wino, which is egregious. And like, he really was so cruel to so many people. So we scrutinized women without any empathy at this era. And Amy Winehouse was at the center of that, I would say. Like, there was no one that I can remember that people more gleefully criticized. Gleefully, Like, it was was just so gleeful and unapologetic. Almost like we thought she liked it, like she was in on the joke, but she wasn't in on the joke. Yeah, we wanted to see her next spill, her next disaster, just as much as we were listening to her music. Late night, comedians, everyone made a joke out of her. This one really breaks my heart. My and everyone's beloved British talk show host, Graham Norton, even took a dig. He called Amy a, quote, useful punchline. Um, and as Nick Shemansky told Enemy after her death, the whole thing was just a fucking disaster. Disaster. In the entire Amy Winehouse saga from start to finish, there were no winners. Everybody lost. I think that's pretty succinct. Um, I really loved what Lady Gaga had to say about Amy and her treatment by the world. Uh, she said this following quote when she spoke on The View in 2011. You know, I just think the most unfortunate thing about it all is 
the way that the media spins things like, oh, here we can learn from Amy's death. Is, I don't feel that, you know, Amy needed to learn any lessons. I felt that the lesson was for the world to be kinder to the superstar. You know, everybody was so hard on her. And um, everything that I knew about her was that she was the most lovely and nice and kind woman. Kaga adds after that being a star is a very lonely life and that you can't have it both ways, enjoying someone singing about blues and heartbreak and not expect them to then be truly heartbroken, which I think is so perfectly put. It's no secret that Amy spent much of her career being hounded by the press her every step followed. She was eaten alive, mocked on tabloid covers, all the while experiencing extreme worldwide fame at a very young age with her husband, whom she was deeply in love with in jail, Whatever you want to say about Blake, that's a fact. She loved him. She lost her grandmother, who was her guardian. She was battling an eating disorder, self-harm, addiction. Her father was her borderline manager. Her mom was also sick. And her music, the one thing that she always said was her real catharsis, had fallen by the wayside. Here she is talking about that to M in 2003, as read by Zeth of The 27 Club. Writing is a very natural process for me. I wait for when I've been through some horrible thing and there's nothing I can do but write about it. I follow my heart because otherwise you get so caught up in other people's opinions. Not that I'm any great authority. I'm a fucking idiot like the rest of the world, but I trust my instincts and that's what has got me where I am. Now, this brings us to our final segment, Hindsight is 2022, where we choose the one moment that we might have handled differently if we were the subject of this story. I shouldn't have done that. Sarah, what would that be for you? Well, if I'd been Perez Hilton, I would have gotten like an internship <laughs> at a PR company and used my powers, you know, more productively. I feel like he is. A- I love your hate for Perez Hilton. I love it. <laughs> I feel like he's a smart person. Like he's clearly a smart person. He? He's an entrepreneur. I mean, like he was able to make a lot of money off of a, a blog. So I, that takes a yes. certain type of intelligence. That's true. That's I, true. I think if he gone to university today and graduated today, he probably would have gone to Silicon Valley and done some sort of like nefarious tech stuff, which would have been bad in a different way. (laughs) Um, But anyway, if if only he'd just gotten an internship and gotten a real job. I mean, like, okay, fine. Blogging is a real (laughs) job. I don't feel like it is the way he did. The way he did was just cyberbullying, right? Like online journalism is real. I have done it. You have done it. The way he did it, he was just like photoshopping people like people's faces to make it look like they had runny noses. That's not like journalism or even writing. Runny noses or something else dripping down out of those nostrils. But yeah, exactly. He was such a worm. He is a worm. As you said, like the, you know, the BBC did say we have to give the people what they want. But part of the reason why we wanted this was we saw it all the time on these blogs that really rose to prominence in this era. Yeah, I agree with you. And I personally wish... And I say, I say this a lot, but I mean, it's kind of the point. I just wish the conversation around mental health had come just a few years sooner, because then I think we maybe could have saved her and her reputation. Mm-hmm. I hate, hate, hate that part of her legacy or so much of her legacy is about her addictions and how she was suffering. And it's just so odd to me that that was never the story. I kind of can't comprehend it because she was constantly saying what she was living with. I mean, the cries for help were constant. Mm-hmm. And I just want everybody to remember that there was a real person under there and she mm-hmm. was really fucking fascinating. 
and really funny. And I encourage you to go back and listen to her interviews and her music if you haven't. But I also just wish that she'd had a better team around her, one that was actually able to take care of her and protect her as a person and not solely as an artist Mm -hmm. and property. She just deserved so much more and she never got it. And it just, it really breaks my heart. Now, to put a finer point on everything we've discussed today, here's Zeth from the 27 Club, this time as himself, sharing his final thoughts on Amy and her legacy. She happened to be, and it wasn't just Amy Winehouse, it was, you know, other figures like Britney Spears. They just happened to be around during this time when the Wild West of tabloids was was so prevalent and it was almost like They wanted to see celebrities not living the high life, like back in the day, maybe when you'd look upon uh, an actor or an actress in the 60s and think, oh, what a glamorous lifestyle. Now it was more like, I wanna see this person knocked down to my level or even lower so I can feel better about myself. You know, that saying, you only hurt the ones you love. I think it's people loved her so much, but they also felt like that gave them license to be cruel to her. And I certainly think that that contributed to her illness. I don't think she was prepared for fame. She wanted to sing. She was a, had a once-in-a-lifetime voice, but she was not prepared for everything that came along with it. And I don't know that she had a great support system. I think maybe she had some people that would have been a great support system, but for whatever reason, she, she sought out others that contributed to uh, her downfall. I think that had she'd been given a little bit of space and been able to sort of mature as an artist without being uh, on the, you know, front page of every tabloid every day. I think that that would have, um, you know, she probably would still be with us today, to be honest. Ah, that was so perfectly put. We want to say thank you to Zeth and the 27 Club. Their show is available wherever you get your podcasts. You've got to check it out. We are at the end of our episode, and I really do hope you'll play Amy's music after you give us a listen so you can hear her side of the story, because that's really the only way you're ever going to get it. Now, if you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Sadafasan. Sarah, where can our listeners find you? Listeners can find me at Sarah Sahagian. And if you liked this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.